We're going to have now our second scripture reading, and it's taken from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I'm going to read from chapter 8 and verse 15 into chapter 9. Genesis 8:15. it comes after the account of the global flood in the days of Noah. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built (coughs) an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal, and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning, From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud." And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So reads the word of God. We're going to look at that passage now for a little while, at a section of that passage of scripture that I have just read from Genesis chapter 8, particularly looking especially at verses 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. As we look at this section, Genesis 8 to 9, and particularly just reaching back in our thoughts to uh, Genesis 7, we immediately are uh, faced with a warning. The warning is there in the account of that global flood which God sent on the earth in the earliest times in the history of the world. Genesis 7 brings us an account of the drastic and terrifying actions of God in this cataclysmic judgment of which we have many reminders today in the various uh, canyons uh, and fossils and so on, the reminders of how God intervened in that dramatic way. And it is a revelation to us of God's unutterable holiness and his wrath against sin. In Genesis 6, we're given the explanation as to why God sent this cataclysmic judgment. We're told that God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And we're told that there was violence and there was sin abounding in the world. And so God determined to make a clean sweep And he uh, sent this flood that reached even above the hills. And only those who were with Noah, those in the ark, the eight people, were saved to repopulate the earth once the waters had subsided. And one of the things that we learn, which is particularly uh, pressing upon us in our day, is here is a revelation to us. Of God's character. God is unutterably holy. God does not tolerate sin. And although God has indeed promised that He will never again send a watery flood upon the earth, there may be local floods, uh, large local floods, uh, we realize that God has not stepped back from His absolute uh, insistence on holiness in the earth and in his creatures. And we're told in 2 Peter, the second letter of Peter in the New Testament, in chapter 3, that though God will not again flood us with waters, 
But there will be another kind of floods, another kind of cataclysm. We're told that the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Yes, there will not be a renewal of the watery floods, but the last judgment will bring a cataclysm of fire upon the world as God creates new heavens and a new earth and God judges all men. Now in seeing that we learn one or two things about the earth. The first is this world in which we live is not eternal. It's not going to go on forever. The second thing is it's not divine. It is simply material and it certainly isn't mother or Gaia, or some kind of mystical entity. It's not sentient. It is just inanimate matter, which was created by God, which has been covered with a global flood, and one day will experience this flood of fire, which Peter describes in his second letter. And the warning is this. We have a mighty, uh, an awesome a holy God to reckon with, the God who created this world, the God who made man in his image is the God that each of us will one day have to face in the judgment. So there's a warning here in the context in which we are looking at this passage. But secondly, there is a promise, and particularly a promise that we are reminded at Uh, reminded about at harvest time. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. I put it to you that something here even more immense and far-reaching than that fearful judgment that is described in Genesis 7 and 8, something far more reaching, far-reaching than even that appalling And devastating though that was, because this new intervention of God, which is called by theologians the Noatian Covenant, you'll have seen that word covenant in the reading, it means God God laying down a certain arrangement, that Noatian Covenant embraces not just water and clouds and water in the sky and water in the deeps under the earth, but it embraces everything to do with this world. It embraces the seasons. It embraces day and night. It embraces the totality of the earth, of the various ecosystems of the earth, and all the interacting factors that make up our world. It's a vast array of factors that God is in control And God is saying that while the earth remains, these things will continue. Seed time, harvest, cold heat, winter, summer, day and night. And I don't know about you, but I find that there's a comfort there straight away. We live in a world of crises and disaster and suffering, but there are certain truths, certain verities, certain bedrock things that happen day after day, and we so easily take these things for granted. But we shouldn't take them for granted. We should be reminded that God keeps 
this world rolling along, that God gives us our bread to eat. God looks after us. God cares for us. Yes, the judgment was huge, but this promise is even vaster. While the earth remains, these things shall not cease. A flood of water followed by a flood of undeserved kindness from God. And within this promise, there is something very surprising that's said, something that's actually paradoxical. Just look at verse 21 again. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. I wonder if you've noticed the disconnect in that. On the one hand, because of the violence and sin, God sent the global flood. And yet within this promise, it says the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man is still the same. And later on in this history of Noah, we learn that Noah and his family are sinners, just like all of us. And there's a a particularly ugly episode of sin described at the end of chapter 9, involving immorality and drunkenness. Yes, man's heart is evil from his youth. He's the imagination of his heart, not just things outside, but right in his heart there is evil. And yet God says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. There's a disconnect there. How is it that we can bring these two things together? What is the thing that connects these apparently completely conflicting matters. Man's sin, and yet God's promise never again to curse the ground for man's sake. And the promise that flows from that in verse 22. Well, the answer is surely found in verse 20. Noah, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The answer to the disconnect, the answer to the apparent contradiction and paradox is this, an altar with sacrifices. Sacrifices in this Old Testament era of clean animals and clean birds. But we know within the teaching of all of the Bible that all the sacrificial system points to the coming of the one great sacrifice for man's sin, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. That is what the Old Testament is predicting, and that is what the New Testament announces. It announces to us that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it tells us how the Son of God achieved that everlasting life for sinners like us. He achieved it by living a completely holy life for 33 years. And then at the last, going to the cross of Calvary, going there and on the cross being crucified 
under the wrath of God, not for his sins, but for the sins of a vast number of sinners who would come one day to believe upon him. So that in the New Testament, we find in the first letter of John, chapter 2, that John can say this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the whole world's. The aftermath of the flood proves that judgment alone will not eradicate sin from the human heart. Even a drastic flood like Noah and his family experienced did not eradicate sin from their hearts. Even being there on the, on the waters in the ark did not take away sin. And Peter, in his first letter, makes the point that it needs more than just water applied in an external way to the flesh. It needs the answer of a good conscience towards God. Something has to happen inside us. Judgment alone will not cleanse us and eradicate sin from our hearts. It needs a sacrifice. And it needs the, <clears throat> excuse me, the benefit and the application of that sacrifice to us. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we read in verse 21 that the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. This is what's called anthropomorphic language. It is putting it in, in a way that man can understand. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. He doesn't have a nose like us. It's putting it in a way that we can understand that this sacrifice is immensely pleasing to God. Why? Because it speaks of his dear son. It speaks of him whom he sent into the world. The father sent the son to be the savior of the world. It speaks of one who came at just the right time, 2,000 years ago. And we read in the letter to the Hebrews that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats, that is of animals, could take away sins. Therefore, when he, that is the Messiah, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. You see, he takes away the first, the animal sacrifices. They're no longer needed. They were needed in the days of the Old Testament as a preparation for what would come. But he's taken those away, and Christ now comes at just the right time to offer himself up as that sweet-smelling savour to God. And all that follows here in the account of God's dealings with Noah and all that has followed in the history of the world flows from that atoning death of Christ for sinners. And we can just perhaps itemize those things. We can just list those things as we find it here in Genesis. What is it that God gives to 
an undeserving and often ungrateful world. Well, he gives seed time and harvest. He gives cold and heat. He gives winter and summer. He gives day and night. There's food for the, the, the human race. Enough food if it were shared uh, unselfishly. There is the promise of multiplication and fruitfulness and filling the earth. Morning by morning and evening by evening, season by season, all the provisions of our life are granted by God. We have no right to them. And the imagination of every man's heart is evil from his youth. That's still the same. We still have original sin. And yet God keeps blessing us. God keeps the world rolling along, as it were. And you know how Jesus makes the point. Some of you, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, you know how Jesus makes this point very emphatically in his Sermon on the Mount concerning this aspect of God's character. He says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is blessing everybody. He's not just blessing Christians. He's blessing everybody, those who worship demons, those who are saying there is no God, those who deny him and say this whole world just came about by chance over millions of years. God is blessing them. God is feeding them. God is looking after us all. Why? Because at just the right time, Christ came into this world to save sinners. And his death, you see, keeps this world in existence, at least while the earth remains. That's the first thing. The second thing that's listed here in Genesis that continues because of God's grace and mercy in the provision of a sacrifice for sinners is this, the protection of human life. In verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 9, God makes it clear that man's life is precious in his hand. If the animal takes that life away, then from the hand of man, that, that animal's life will be demanded. And that's often the case, isn't it? If, if, a, if a wild animal kills a person, it's usually sought out and, and killed, whether it's a crocodile or a, or a tiger or some such thing. But it goes on to say, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. I don't want to get into matters of capital punishment and that kind of thing, but the point I want to make is this, that God has it so established it in the world that man's life is still under his protection. Uh, you might say that doesn't seem very obvious as you look at things going on in the world. What we can say is that if God had not given this protection, at least in some embryonic form, there would be unrestrained universal murder and violence. But Noah was not brought into paradise. Paradise was back in the days of Adam and Eve. Noah was brought into a new world that had been purged and cleansed, but was still a fallen world. And yet God protects 
human life. How does he do that? Well, here in this promise, there is seen to be an embryonic promise concerning the gift of government. That might surprise you that I say that, but government is the gift of God. Even bad governments. And remember when the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, which I'm just about to quote from, the Emperor Nero was the emperor, a man of great cruelty and great great capriciousness. And yet even under that government, it was better than anarchy. So that the Apostle Paul could say this, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister or servant to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now this is obviously broad brush teaching. But what it is telling us is this. In a world that is fallen, in a world in which God promises not to flood this world again with a watery flood, He preserves a degree of order and he preserves food and provision in order that what Jesus did on the cross may yet be broadcast through the worlds. Genesis chapter 9, we come to the third thing that is listed here concerning how uh, God has promised to bless the world. In chapter 9, verses 13 to 17, God says, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is a covenant, an arrangement that covers all humankind without exception whether or not they worship and fear and love him. God has said that there will be those times when the rainbow shall be in the cloud. There's this black cloud, there's this huge thunder cloud, but the sun shining on it and through it, and you see a rainbow. I don't particularly understand the physics of it. It was never my favorite subject at school. But the light and the darkness together make up a rainbow. It's not just sunshine, because just having sunshine means nothing unless there is the threat of the thunder and the threat of the storm and the threat of the wrath of God, as it's remembered in the days of the flood. It's only against that background of the holiness of God and the judgment of God that the mercy of God means anything. And we're reminded every time we see a rainbow, we should be reminded 
that even though it is a fallen world, yet God is sparing it down the millennia. He's sparing everybody. And he's in loving generosity taking care of everybody while he calls men and women to repentance and to faith in Christ. God says, I will not again curse the earth anymore for man's sake. God knows that another radical judgment like the global watery flood would destroy the whole human race. And God is not going to do it until his son, Jesus Christ, returns. And until then, God continues to invite people to faith in Christ. So we have a warning, we have a promise, and more briefly, we have here an invitation. They used to say, perhaps somewhat glibly, concerning Christian work and the giving of Christian tracts or leaflets to very poor people, financially very poor people, that if you want your tract to be read, you should wrap a sandwich in it. Well, I put it to you that every year, God wraps his tract, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in a sandwich, the harvest. It's the harvest that cries out to us, it is time to turn to this God who has provided for you. It is time to turn to this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who looks after your body and who can save your soul. I say again, when we see a rainbow, every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded of this covenant that God has made with man and with the world and his promise never again to flood the earth. We find the rainbow turning up again in the New Testament. And remarkably, in the last book of the Bible, even as it's there in the first book of the Bible, we find it in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 4, verse 3, in a a revelation, an image, a vision of Christ. In this vision, he's seen on a throne set in heaven, And we're told he who sat there, this is Christ in his glory, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now we know that the color green, or emerald, is a pastoral color. It's a restful color. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He leads me in green pastures. It's a a color of peace. And around Christ there is this rainbow of peace because he's made peace for sinners through the blood of his cross. But also Jesus Christ is exemplified for us in this narrative concerning the flood in the ark. We haven't had time to look at that in any detail at all, but the ark is that place made of gopher wood, Uh, which was built by Noah. It was a big structure to house um, animals and to house his family. And God kept the door open until that point when everyone had gone in and then the Lord shut the door. That's a picture of Jesus Christ, is it not? That's a picture of the one in whom we can be safe from the wrath of God. 
that's the picture of one in whom we can hide from that flood of his vengeance, which is to come yet against sin and ungodliness. Even in this life, we can hide in Christ and no forgiveness and no cleansing. So the earth continues, not because God has lost interest in it and found something else to do. The earth continues not because God is defeated by the human race and its waywardness. The earth continues not because God is wondering what to do next in the mess of this pandemic and other such things. But the earth continues because this is a a world in which God is determined to bring men and women and boys and girls to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the rainbow of his peace, who is the ark of safety, and who is the one in in whom each one of us must shelter and come to trust in him and depend on him as your Lord and Saviour.